0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. I am Melek Frat Altai, a musician and a neuroscientist. I will be your host today and we will be talking to Professor Tom Hayem about his new book, The World Before Us, The New Science Behind Our Human Origins, published by Yale University Press. Professor Hayem is an archeological scientist and a radiocarbon dating specialist. He is a professor of scientific archaeology at the University of Vienna since August 2021 and is best known for his work in dating the Neanderthal extinction and the arrival of modern humans in Europe. Tom, welcome. How are you?
2: I'm fine, thanks. How are you?
1: Not bad. Not bad. Awesome. Um, So, thank you for joining us today for this podcast. Um, Could you please start with uh, telling us about yourself?
2: Yeah. Okay. So um my name is Tom Haim and um, I'm a professor of evolutionary anthropology and I work at the University of Vienna in the Department of Evolutionary Anthropology. My background is in archaeological science and I am uh, an expert in the dating of archaeological sites using radiocarbon dating, which is the method that we most commonly use to date archaeological sites from the last 50 to sixty thousand years anything older than that we have to use alternative methods and uh, so i uh yeah i specialize in um applying not just radiocarbon but increasingly other methods to understanding more about the archaeological past in particular i'm interested in this period um, between about sort of 30 to sixty thousand years ago which is when we have a very interesting period where neanderthals uh, Homo sapiens, us in other words, and another very interesting group of humans called the Denisovans existed on Earth. And I'm interested in figuring out what happened uh, when these various populations met one another and why it is that we're the only species of human that's left on the Earth today.
1: Great. It's an amazing topic. I'm, I'm really fascinated by it. And um, what uh, made you write uh, your book, The World Before Us? Why yeah.
2: now? Yeah. So uh I, I, I never really thought I would write a book and uh my dad, he's an archaeologist, he t- he said, Oh yeah, you, you should really bu- write, write a book because um you know often books uh, are a great way to communicate um, interesting research and ideas to people. Most of my work previously was in publishing rather short scientific papers, uh, publishing you know experimental methods and some results from the work we'd done. But uh, what really um, sort of spurred me to uh, write the book was uh, a lecture tour that I was giving. I went back to um, my home country of New Zealand in 2015 to give a lecture tour, which was sponsored by uh, um, an evolution um, evolution group, uh, their research institute. And uh, so I went to nine main centers in 10, 12 days, which is quite a, it was quite a, a full on tour. And, um, I kept on meeting up with people afterwards and asking, answering questions. And some of the questions were to do with, uh, can you recommend a book to read about this interesting subject? And because I was talking mostly about Denisovans, um, they didn't, uh, I didn't really have a book that I could recommend. There wasn't nothing, there was nothing uh, out there on that. So I thought maybe I should do that. So, uh, I asked uh, a couple of colleagues how I should go about doing this because I didn't really have an idea and they gave me some suggestions and so I eventually contacted, contacted an agent and uh, she, Joanna Swainson, she helped me to uh, put together the proposal for the book and uh, and um, unfortunately I had so little time that I left it for about four years before I actually got off on, on to really writing the proposal um, but then after that uh, things went quite fast and due to COVID, um, I was at home for a lot of time and I had some time on my hands to work. So I I put together the book in about 18 months, um, uh, during the uh, lockdowns that we experienced sadly in 2020, 21.
1: And, um, what is the, the pitch of your book? If you were to give us one.
2: Yeah. So, um, interestingly today we are the only species of human on earth from the genus Homo and, uh, when we look around in the animal kingdom and we look at primates and great apes and so on, we see that there are quite a lot of representatives of, uh, of of those groups of the genus like pan, for example, Um, certainly more than one. And uh, what's interesting is that the last 10 to 20 years, we've seen a real revolution in the field of human evolution and anthropology in which we've managed to find uh, three And sorry, no, four uh, new species of humans that we didn't know existed before. And it turns out that it's only a few uh, thousand years ago that we were the only human group uh, in the world. Before this, before 20,000 to 50,000 years ago, um, there were multiple groups. I mean, we can count at least eight that coexisted in the world at that time. So my book is an attempt to tell a story about who these groups were, um, where they lived, how they were adapted, what their behavior was like, and uh, also um, why why it is that we're the only group left on the planet. So that's basically the the the, the subject of the book.
1: So in your book, you um, mention uh, several different techniques that you use to to identify these different uh, archaic humans, and mm-hmm. uh, we could, I guess, generally refer to them as the the ancient uh, genomics field. Mm-hmm. Could you tell us a little further about that?
2: Yeah, so um, I uh, have been um, a witness, a, a close collaborator of um, several uh, ancient DNA specialists who've managed to improve the technique uh, over the last few, few years to a point now where it's, I wouldn't say routine, but it's getting to a routine um, stage in which we can extract and sequence uh, ancient DNA. From really old things, really old bones and uh, teeth, and so um, when I when I first started, uh, when I first went to uh, the University of Oxford in two thousand one, I, I, I made friends with some of the ancient DNA group that was there. And at that stage, uh, they were working on uh, sequencing um, uh, bones from uh, from extinct animals, uh, like like the dodo, for example. Um, and, and and birds and um, and bears and so on. And when I asked them about uh, human DNA, the answer that I got was that this was not possible. And that was because of the extent to which bones were contaminated by human DNA, DNA from us. And so it seemed like it was a complete dead end. And then um, beginning in around, I guess, 2007, eight, nine, um, increasingly, there was different news that, that was coming through that new instruments were allowing scientists to sequence in greater number the DNA from these ancient bones. And also using new chemical techniques, methods were being developed to allow us to s- separate contaminating modern human DNA from authentic ancient DNA. And this uh, came as a great surprise and a very pleasant surprise. And in 2010, I was fortunate enough to be part of a uh, team that sequenced the first extinct human genome from a an individual of about 4000 years old who lived in Greenland and this was worked on with Eskavilla's lab in the University of Copenhagen and the Museum of the Center for Geogenetics and uh, so since then ancient DNA has really exploded as I say and uh, ancient DNA is right at the heart of this new view we have of uh, of the archaeological record which uh, has allowed us to paint a much fuller picture of exactly what happened uh, when Homo sapiens came out of Africa and started to meet these other groups that they'd been separated from in evolutionary terms for hundreds of thousands of years. The most important and the most well-known, of course, being the Neanderthals.
1: So, um, there are different types of uh, archaic humans, um, as you mentioned, um, and thanks to these techniques, now we seem to know a little more about them. Could you tell us a bit further on, on these different uh, human types?
2: Yeah, that's right. Um, so, as I said, I think the most uh, well-known would be, would be the Neanderthals. And uh, you have to imagine that at some point, more than about 500,000 years ago, humans like us and the Neanderthals shared a common ancestor. And at some point, that ancestral population split and uh, some of those people ended up in Eurasia and Western Eurasia and others remained in Africa and still others moved into eastern parts of Eurasia. Um, so we all share a common route, but we all went our own way in evolutionary terms. And after the separation, we evolved in slightly different ways and became, became adapted to more local conditions, Neanderthals to the conditions in Western Eurasia, which were um, a mix of challenging conditions, including very cold conditions sometimes, and then warmer conditions rather like ours at other times. And of course, uh, Homo sapiens predominantly evolving in Africa in different regions of Africa, similarly um, adapting to those conditions. And then um, later, as I said, um, once uh, Homo sapiens uh, came out of Africa and into Eurasia, these groups met up again. So we have um, Neanderthals, Homo sapiens, Denisovans, who are Neanderthal relatives, close cousins, who predominantly lived in Eastern, Eastern Eurasia. And amongst the Denisovans, a group that was only discovered using ancient genetics in 2010, we now know that there was more complexity in this group even than we thought before. Rather than being a single population, we know that there were at least two quite separated populations of Denisovans, One we um, recently start to term the northern Denisovans and other southern Denisovans. The southern Denisovans predominantly living in places like Island Southeast Asia, perhaps Papua New Guinea, and parts of um, Melanesia. Um, Some analyses have suggested that there may even be three different subpopulations of Denisovans. And then in 2003, the incredible discovery of Homo floresiensis, the so-called hobbits, uh, on the island of Flores in, in Indonesia, um, these very uh, short-statured uh, uh, humans that were found uh, by a team of Indonesian and Australian archaeologists led by Mike Morwood, and then in 2019 on the island of Luzon in the Philippines, the discovery at Kayal Cave of the uh, uh, of a similarly interesting and small group of uh, humans called Homo luzonensis, and then finally. Um, uh, five years ago, in the cave in South Africa uh, called Rising Star Cave, in the cradle of humankind near Johannesburg, the incredible discovery of uh, Homo naledi, uh, similarly quite small, um, dating to probably more than 250,000 years ago. So we're not sure if these 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 humans overlapped with later humans, the, the type we're talking about, uh, 50 000 to 60,000 years ago. But you know who really knows? So we have now a flavour of of a very bushy and diverse uh, group of different humans from different parts of the world. And intriguingly, we know for sure that these different groups met with one another on more than one occasion. And when they did, they uh, interbred with uh, each other and uh, exchanged DNA and hybridized, which uh, gives us a very um, uh, interesting and uh, rather uh, extraordinary genetic legacy, which we inherit from some of these archaic humans.
1: Exactly. and. Um... So um, with uh, Neanderthals, uh, you mentioned that the Homo sapiens um, um, got in contact, and in fact, they interbred. So, how similar were the Neanderthals to Homo sapiens, and what sort of uh, interaction did they have, apart from interbreeding, of course?
2: Yeah, it's a, it's a good it's a good question, and um, one which has been uh, highly debated over the last uh, century, I guess. Um, we 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 had a, a long running debate um, because we were it was very difficult for us to know whether Neanderthals or um, Homo sapiens ever met one another, and this is because radiocarbon dating, my method, uh, is at the uh, limit of the technique. So around fifty thousand years ago, forty to fifty thousand years ago, it's not very precise. So if we get a date, it comes with a margin of error and uncertainty that sometimes can be plus or minus five or 600 years. And so we, when we're dating the latest Neanderthal sites and the earliest homo sapien sites, there was a a, a deal of overlap and this was interpreted in different ways by some people. Um, More recently though, we've managed to improve the technique and improve the uh, way in which we do the dating. And we found that we have a great deal of confidence now that there was an overlap. Of several thousand years between the dates of the latest neanderthals before they disappear and the dates of the earliest homo sapiens as they come into uh western eurasia and so um we now have a very good idea of um of the fact that these groups must have spent a considerable amount of time overlapping with one another and this uh, was confirmed um of course uh by ancient dna which showed that since 2010, which showed that uh, Homo sapiens have interbred with Neanderthals and have a genetic legacy. The questions really um, focus now on how similar we were and uh, what Neanderthals were like. And again, there's a lot of debate about this. Some people now increasingly feel that Neanderthals were actually a very well adapted, um, quite behaviorally advanced group, uh, not uh, as uh, we once thought Uh, sort of backward and a bit slow and um, not as gifted as us in terms of technology and cognition Uh, we see a lot of evidence increasingly for the fact that neanderthals were able to uh, do things that we previously hadn't considered them able to For, for example um using uh, uh, quite refined technological um, developments and breakthroughs in terms of making stone tools, uh, making certain types of hafted resin uh, glues that we use to stick stone tool tips to wooden uh, hafted implements to be able to make uh, wooden spears. Uh, Questions about whether or not they were able to make um, ornaments and decorative artefacts and perhaps even art uh, have, um, to an extent, been resolved um, with recent discoveries, but as I say, there are other um, colleagues that uh, don't accept all of the uh, all of this evidence, and I think suggest that whilst Neanderthals might have been able to do some of those things, they weren't in the same league as Homo sapiens. So again, there's a lot of debate and discussion going on at the moment about how closely how close we were and how similar we were. But what we do know for sure is that we were able to interbreed with one another and create offspring that then had children of their own. Um, although there's a debate there too in terms of how successful that off interbreeding was um, in the last few years. Um, for example, we think that there's evidence that um, maybe one in 50 so-called interbreeding events resulted in an, in an, offspring that was able to then go on and interbreed. So there could have been perhaps sterility issues with these people, which we often find when different groups become evolutionarily separated from one another. Um, so, there's a lot still to, to 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 be discovered and a lot still to find out and lots that's still under discussion. But compared to where we were in 2010, we now know a lot more about the relationship between Neanderthals and uh, and modern humans.
1: And what about the Denisovans? It, uh, they are even uh, less known than than the Neanderthals.
2: Yes, that's right. So the Denisovans are a very curious uh, uh, example because. These, these, this group was really discovered um, on the basis of ancient genomics and ancient DNA. And uh, colleagues uh, of mine in, um, in the Russian Academy of Sciences in Siberia and Novosibirsk have been excavating in a site called Denisova Cave for many, many years. And they um, they found a cave which is very deep, um, occupied for about a quarter of a million years, maybe maybe more. And uh, they found tiny vestiges and remains of, of humans, a tooth here, a little finger bone there, and so on. But it wasn't until they got DNA um, extracted by the Max Planck um, Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology in Leipzig, Germany, that uh, that this incredible um, realization dawned that there was a, a new group of humans out there, not Neanderthals and not homo sapiens. Um, and we've been calling them the Denisovans uh, ever since 2010. And so this is a group that, uh, as I say, lives in uh, the predominant, their distribution is in eastern Eurasia. We have evidence from them at Denisova cave, which is about halfway across Eurasia. We have some evidence for them in um, on the Tibetan plateau in western China and probably also in um, Southeast Asia in uh, Laos. Um, perhaps also in um, uh, a, a jawbone that was um, fished up between China and Taiwan out of the sea. And um, most of the evidence that we've got for Denisovans isn't from skeletons or pieces of bone. Interestingly, it's actually from the, the, the ancient DNA and the DNA that we find in living humans. Because rather like with Neanderthals, scientists have discovered that certain groups of living people have Uh, ancestry that's derived from Denisovans, just like Neanderthals uh, derive, um, we derive ancestry from Neanderthals. And it's interesting that uh, in terms of the distribution of this Denisovan DNA, we find majority of it in in Melanesia, places like Papua New Guinea, um, Australia, amongst Aboriginal people. And we also find it in um, island Southeast Asia and places like the Philippines and, and Indonesia, places... East places to the east of the so-called Wallace's line, we find lower amounts in Eastern Asia, places like China, South in South Asia, places like India, and also amongst Native American people, who bring bring with them some of the this uh, DNA uh, when they um, when when the first people moved into the Americas, and so we we have um, uh, this incredible legacy again of uh, of DNA, and now we're trying to understand exactly what this DNA is and what it gives uh, humans. But intriguingly, it looks as though a lot of that DNA uh, that we inherit is giving us um, some kind of immunological benefit. So more than 400 gene variants uh, that have been discovered deriving from Denisovans code for um, benefits from uh, immunological responses. And so We think that perhaps the reason that this this has happened is that early homo sapiens who moved into these areas interbred with Denisovans who were living there. And some of the DNA that they got was beneficial, adaptively advantageous to them. And therefore it was selected for. And so um, a fantastic example of of a similar type of thing is um, found amongst living Tibetans today. And uh, this uh, discovery was made uh, shortly after the Denisovan genome was published. Um, basically, uh, if if you have um, a version of the EPAS1 uh, gene uh, that comes from Denisovans, you have this ability to live at high altitude and avoid hypoxia difficulties that people face when they go to climb Mount Everest, for example. People living in Tibet today have 95% of them have this variant of the, this EPAS1 gene that allows them to live at high altitude, to have children at high altitude that don't die, and this this gene variant comes directly from uh, Denisovans. So we're learning more and more all the time about these uh, very interesting uh, genetic um, advantages that, uh, that 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 accrued from from the Denisovans in this case, rather than from the Neanderthals.
1: Could you tell us a little bit about the story of Denny?
2: Oh, yeah. Yes, yeah, so uh, so this is uh, a, a, one of the chapters uh, in, in my book, which uh, was a real research highlight um, uh, in the lab I work in over the last few years. Um, so, basically, um, working at Denise of the Cave, my job was mainly to work on the chronologies. But because I'm interested in the general archaeology as well, um, I, I, I was also keen to, to make a contribution elsewhere, and um, once uh, in 20, uh, 2014, um, my wife Katarina and I, who was uh, who's a, my research partner, were at the site, uh, and uh, we came up with an idea. And um, the idea was basically built around two things. One, the bones from Denisova, um, 95% of them are broken up into tiny bone fragments that you can't actually identify to species that they've been eaten up by animals like hyenas. And the second point is that those bones often have very high levels of DNA, ancient DNA that can be retrieved and sequenced. And so we, um, we came up with an idea of using um, a method of identification of um, uh, bone, bone protein sequences that we could then use to identify the bones to species or genus level. And so we had this idea that if we could screen enough bones using this technique that we could find some that were giving us this collagen fingerprint of uh hominidae which we can then genetically sequence and so we um we started uh doing this work in uh, 2015. initially it went a bit slowly but then we were very fortunate to get a um a very committed and keen master student who worked on the project called samantha brown and uh Samantha worked for several months extracting collagen from s- tiny bone fragments. And at first, the first 700 fragments that she analyzed um, didn't produce any uh, homin- hominidae or um, human family uh, uh, collagen peptides. They were all you know, from animals like mammoths and bears and uh, wolves and things like that. Um, but to her credit, she continued working hard and managed to uh to another 700 and, uh, number 1,227 turned out to be, um, a bone of a hominidae, a tiny bone. It was about 2.4 centimeters high. You'd never, um, know it was a human bone, um, unless you did some of this uh, biochemistry work on it. And, uh, to our amazement when it was, uh, genetically sequenced in, uh, in Leipzig at the Max Planck, Viviana Sloan, who was another PhD student working, uh, there, um, and her team, um, Led by the Nobel Prize-winning scientist uh, Svante Pabo, uh, succeeded in showing that the bone had DNA that derived in roughly equal measure from a Neanderthal and from a Denisovan. And so we were able to show that this uh, this 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 girl, this this young woman, uh, had a Neanderthal mother and a Denisovan father. And it was the first time we've ever found a first generation hybrid person in archaeological, uh, in the in the world ever and so um this has been really an exciting find because it's it's shown how how maybe how common it was for these different populations to meet one another and to interbreed and um uh, I mean in in many ways we perhaps could have predicted this um but you know there's nothing. Like 2020 vision. Um, And we're finding now that more and more um, times that bone is sequenced, new bones uh, from the archaeological record are sequenced, we find evidence in their genomes that they have a history of some degree of admixture, that in the past different populations interbred with one another and then became isolated again. And uh, it just so happens that Delhi happens to be a first generation hybrid rather than um providing evidence for deeper um, admixture history
0: i don't know about you but i'm very busy and i don't have a lot of time to cook that's why i subscribe to factor eating better is easy with factors delicious ready to eat meals every fresh never frozen meal is chef crafted dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes you'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week including calorie smart protein plus and keto these are two minute meals slash nbn50 to get 50% off.
1: That's uh, an amazing finding, I, I, I think. And um, in the world before us, you also mentioned ghost populations. What mm-hmm. does that exactly mean?
2: So a ghost population is where where we, where we sequence um, a, an ancient genome and we find parts of the genome that we can't match, we can't compare to existing genomes. So, for example... Some of the DNA in us, we can easily say this is Neanderthal because it's got an identical sequence. or this is Denisovan identical sequence, but a proportion of it um, doesn't match anything. And so these sections of DNA are called um, ghost sections um, and may derive from ghost populations, populations that we don't know the identity of. We haven't sequenced yet. And so there's quite a bit of this DNA out there. And it's tempting to think that it's derived from two sources. One, it could just simply be a statistical aberration, um, meaning that we haven't quite managed to um, do effective analysis statistically of uh, of this DNA. Two, it could be that we either... Are lacking the breadth of dna from existing living human populations or from ancient human populations and that's why we can't sequence this dna or we can't compare these sequences of dna so for example it could be that there is um there are other humans out there in the archaeological record that we haven't found yet i think this is a d- distinct possibility when you consider what we've found even in the last 20 years but also um in Africa, there's the greatest source of genetic diversity, and there's still a great deal to know and understand about what's happening in Africa in terms of uh, genetics. For example, only a couple of years ago, uh, a couple of years ago, um, DNA from uh, Khoisan uh, groups were sequenced, and this added more than ten percent to the sum totality of genetic variation we have for Homo sapiens. And so I think over the next few years, as we find more archaeological um, human remains that can be genetically sequenced, and we sequence more in terms of living human DNA, we may find that these ghost populations either disappear or they become uh, even more manifest. And we find out even more about this incredible uh, historical legacy that we have from these um, from these ancient uh, human relatives that are now no longer with us.
1: So... Of course one of the key questions is that how come the homo sapiens survived and all these different human types did not why do you think this happened Yes
2: yeah, so this is uh, again there are lots of uh, varying different viewpoints and I think if you ask um 10 paleoanthropologists uh, what they think you may get 10 slightly different answers but um I think it's fair to say that there have been lots and lots of single um cause arguments uh to say why humans uh, are the only survivors left. But I think the most common ones are to do with the fact that people think that we are more cognitively um, gifted and uh, more advanced uh, in terms of our uh, adaptation technology and behavior. Uh, I think this is one of the common things that has been suggested. And this is kind of easy to understand because we are literally the last people standing. And therefore, it's easy to think that we must be better than everybody else. But I think actually that uh, the answer might not be as simple as that. I think it may be down to other things. Um, And certainly, um, there's been a lot of work over this in the last few years. Other explanations, volcanic eruptions disappear, making Neanderthals disappear, um, changes in the Earth's uh, geomagnetic field increasing levels of um, skin cancers and killing neanderthals off um, diseases killing neanderthals off there's been a whole range of different things but i think one of the most interesting um, explanations uh, recently is to do with the fact that we know based on these ancient genomic uh, results that the population size might be a key thing um, we we can reconstruct population size um, from the careful analysis of nuclear DNA sequenced from Neanderthals. And what this has suggested is that Neanderthals were probably present in quite low numbers yeah, in terms of their total population. In fact, it's possible that at any one time there could have been only five or 6,000 Neanderthals living uh, on planet Earth. And so uh, when we compare that evidence with evidence for Homo sapiens, we find that it's a rather different story. We find that there were probably more homo sapiens than neanderthals um, and so it's possible that it could simply be that there were more of us than them and once we came into contact with them it may be that they either disappeared um, as an inevitable um, result of their small populations being isolated from one another and i think another uh, in- intriguing possibility could simply be that their population assimilated into ours and we sort of took them into our rather meta population. And that might be uh, the way that, Neander- that Neanderthals disappeared. As far as Denisovans go, though, we we don't really know because there's not very much archaeological evidence. We know that Denisovan um, diversity in terms of their genetics is much higher. We know that their populations are more complex. And there's intriguing evidence that Denisovans may even have survived up until as recently as 20 to 22,000 years ago in which case we're talking about a period of great upheaval and change in the world where the climate became the coldest it's ever been. The last glacial maximum, as it's called, saw temperatures plunge. Um, Huge ice sheets formed, sea levels dropped, and uh, populations contracted. And it's tempting to think that this may have been where we see the end of and They disappear as a function of this as well as perhaps increasing pressure on them from competing groups of homo sapiens that had moved into Eastern Eurasia. So there's still a lot to learn and still a lot to understand, a lot we don't know about why these different groups um, disappeared. I think there's probably not one single explanation for all of it. It may be that it's much more complex than that. And we just have to try and work our way through the evidence carefully and understand why it is that these groups are now sadly no longer with us.
1: But then, now we know that we have some uh, genetic uh, inheritance from the Neanderthals and the Denisovans. Can we identify exactly which traits we have inherited from them?
2: Yes, that's right, we can. And uh, this is a really exciting um, area of research, working out the function of the DNA that we inherit. Um, what, it, looks, it looks as though what happened was that once uh, this interbreeding had taken place, There was a selection against neanderthal dna um, in the case of neanderthals and so um, we think that what happens is that because neanderthals are present in lower numbers that if you're in a small population it's much more difficult and less efficient to remove mutations in your dna and so these mutations begin to gradually build up and build up because they're not being cleaned in a larger population and so Um, Once Neanderthals and Homo sapiens meet after their separation, so more than three or four hundred thousand years has gone by at this point, um, we see um, that after integration of Neanderthal DNA into Homo sapiens populations, we see that the amount of DNA from Neanderthals begins to be selected against rather dramatically and it falls very quickly. And then it stays at about the same level for tens of thousands of years, so around two to three percent. Um, which is about the level that we have today. Um, and so now um, now that we know which DNA we inherit, um, it's possible to look at the function of that DNA and what it gives us. And interestingly, there are some negative things and some positive things that we get from seemingly from Neanderthals. So, for example, a negative thing would be that DNA sequences associated with uh, type 2 diabetes seem to derive from Neanderthals. And also from... Um, smoking um, addictive behaviours and from uh, the disease lupus. Um, In the case of diabetes, this doesn't mean that um, Neanderthals all had diabetes. It may simply be that there's a a sort of a double-edged sword to those genes. um, And diabetes-related DNA may have been a beneficial um, response to have, if you're dealing with long periods of, of, of lacking access to food, it's simply that now in the modern world, when we have so much access to sugar, that it becomes actually a deleterious um, a gene to have, or group of genes to have. Um, but we do find benefits uh, that seems, seem to have accrued from Neanderthals, for example, um, the quality of collagen skin and hair uh, derived from Neanderthals seems to have been a beneficial um, um, uh, trait for us. Um, but again, we're, we're learning more and more all the time about this DNA, and that's because we now have huge data banks that uh, provide living human DNA, and that's coupled with um, work like uh, has happened at the UK's biobank, where they interview patients and they ask them about their daily lives, Um, You know, does your skin burn quickly? Um, What kind of mobile phone do you use? Um, What time do you like to wake up in the morning? And so on and so forth. So we can look at the phenotype and the DNA. And we can also look at the, the Neanderthal DNA and how often that is expressed with respect to these different phenotypes. And so we can see and we can try and now understand what exactly is the DNA from Neanderthals and how it affects us today. This is quite new research. It's only in the last few years that this has been done. But we're starting to learn more and more about, um, about the uh, gift of this uh, genetic legacy and what it actually means for us living today in our daily lives.
1: And if you were to travel back in time, which ancient hominin would you like to have met? Do you have a preference?
2: I think I'd like to go back and um, meet uh, the parents of Denny and, uh, and see where they lived and how how they lived and um, where they moved to and how they met one another. Um, I'm really intrigued by, uh, by 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 the situation in Russia and particularly in the Denisova cave area. It's a beautiful part of the world. There's so much exciting archaeology. And I think that it's significant geographically because it's at the midpoint of the continent and it's between two populations of Denisovans in the east and Neanderthals in the west and that they occasionally overlapped at this point And so I'm really interested to see what it was like in the deep past and to try and look over the shoulders of these um, hominins as they interacted with one another. And if if you give me a time machine, I think that would be the place I would go to first.
1: (laughs) Probably I would join you if I
2: could. (laughs) Yeah, that'd be amazing.
1: So this has been uh, an amazing discussion. Uh, Could you tell us what you're currently working on?
2: Yes, um, at the moment, I am trying to um, publish a whole lot of uh, results that uh, we obtained uh, from a previous project um, looking at dating a period um, we call the initial Upper Paleolithic. This is a period between 40 000 to 60,000 years ago where we see new types of uh, technologies um, appearing right across Eurasia. And we think. This is the um, sort of the pathway, the uh, evidence left by early homo sapiens as they moved into these areas. So I'm trying to publish a lot of this work. Um, similarly, um, with Katarina Duca, my wife, we um, we have a lot of new discoveries of uh, little tiny bones that we found from sites like Denise of the Cave, which have been genetically sequenced. And we're hoping to publish more of those uh, in the next uh in the next uh, year or so. Um, as always with the academic world we're always trying to find money to uh, to fund new work and at the moment I have a couple of research grants that I've just submitted that I'm hoping will be able to be funded and then we'll do a whole, whole lot more interesting research that hopefully will be able to be talked about in the next four or five years.
1: Great, Tom many thanks for joining us today.
2: Pleasure, thank you so much for um, your interest and in, for a very interesting interview.